Let's turn to Psalm 22 this morning. A young soldier in Italy was fighting in World War II and he jumped into a foxhole to dodge the bullets. To make the foxhole deeper for protection, he was digging with his hands and he came across a a metal crucifix, a silver crucifix. Not being a religious man, he just looked at it and a few moments later, another man jumped in the foxhole for protection. It happened to be a chaplain. So the first guy holding the crucifix, looking up at the chaplain, said, Boy, am I glad to see you. How do you work one of these things anyway? (laughs) And I think a lot of people feel that way about the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in general. How does it work? Why did God send his son to suffer so much? What did it accomplish? And those answers are found actually in the 22nd Psalm, a psalm about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In fact, though it's written in the Old Testament, in many ways it's more detailed in its description of the crucifixion than even the gospel accounts. The reason that that's so unique is, first of all, it's in the Old Testament. Second of all, crucifixion had not even been invented when this psalm was written. And so it it captivates our attention. A psalm that would seemingly speak of death by crucifixion in the Old Testament. Now, the psalm begins by saying it's a psalm of David to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn. We presume that that's a song from the temple times, but it says a psalm of David. And so scholars have tried to figure out what in David's life would precipitate this psalm. What event would it be? What occasion? And the thing is, is that we look at the scripture, we can't find a particular incident that fits all of the details of this psalm. Others have said, well, it's not a psalm of David. It's a psalm written by David, but it's the experience of the Jewish exiles while in Babylon. That doesn't seem to fit either. Others will say, well, it's not really a psalm of David. Somebody just wrote that, and it's about the Maccabean period, hundreds of years later when the Jews suffered at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrians. The truth is, if you look at this psalm openly and honestly, there is no particular incident in the life of Israel or the life of David or anyone else that fits all of the details of this psalm. It is a psalm describing an execution, the execution of a righteous man. It is a prophetic and messianic psalm. And one thing we know for sure, and that is Jesus said the first verse of this psalm during his crucifixion. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm is a message that I think the church in this particular era of history needs to hear. We're living in a time when many churches in the desire to be user-friendly and hep and cool are taking out songs about the cross from their hymnals and from their Worship times. Get rid of the blood, they say. It's too gross. It's too outdated. People aren't into that kind of stuff anymore. Just make it fun and hep and cool and and, uh, take the cross out. Or put the cross amidst stained glass windows and relegate it to just some kind of pictorial event that you would have in some place in the church. George McLeod wrote these words. Listen. 
He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace, as well as the steeple of a church. I'm recovering the claim that Christ was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. But that is where he died, and that is what he died about. That is where Christ's men ought to be, and that's what church people ought to be about. With that in mind, let's read through the first 21 verses of Psalm 22. And you're going to notice something as we go through this whole psalm. It's divided into two. It's very dark and dismal at the beginning, but then it ends up in praise. There's a turnaround because the psalm speaks of the anguish of the cross and the accomplishments of the cross as well. And I hope that all of you will be touched by this study. Because I fear that Christians who have heard the message of the cross so long, when they hear of Jesus dying on the cross, yeah, I heard that. It doesn't penetrate. You have to have a pretty hard heart to not let something like this penetrate your heart. And I hope it does. I hope that you would rekindle a fresh appreciation and worship for what Jesus has done for each and every one of you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths. Like the raging and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. That's the anguish of the cross. And basically it's a description of being abandoned by God and by man. When you read or hear the first phrase, the first verse of this psalm, it ought to ring a bell. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was the fourth statement Jesus uttered while on the cross. It's a very dark and dismal saying. Now, if you think back to Jesus' passion, it seems that Jesus was thinking of anyone but himself during this time. He was always thinking of others. For instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him, and they were going to pick up the disciples and arrest them, Jesus said, look, if you want me, arrest me. Let these men go, protecting the disciples. On the way to Golgotha, when the women were after him weeping, he said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Then when they put Jesus up on the cross, when the Romans put those long spikes into his wrist, the first thing out of his lips was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To the thief next to Jesus, he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then when his own mother was at the foot of the cross, Jesus, again thinking of others, said to John the Apostle, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. In other words, take care of my mother. So he was always thinking of others, not himself. Until a particular point. Scripture says that a mysterious darkness fell over the whole area. And then there was silence on the cross. Nothing was said. Nothing could be seen. And it was like God was pulling a shroud over his son. They were private hours on the cross, three hours to be exact, where there was a holy transaction taking place between heaven and earth. We don't know what was said or thought or done exactly during those hours, But if Psalm 22 is a clue, perhaps the Savior was reciting this psalm to his Father, even in its totality. One thing we know for sure, and that is, when the silence was broken, it was broken with the words of verse 1 in Psalm 22. In fact, I'd like you to turn to Matthew, Matthew 27. I think it'll really gel if you see it in its context of the Savior on the cross. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 45 is where we want to look. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Uh, Don't get the idea that Jesus whispered it so that others said, What? What did he say? It was a loud guttural scream in the original language. He was crying out so that everyone could unmistakably hear him taking Psalm 22 and applying it. He cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think for a moment what a despairing cry that was. I can't think of a a lonelier word in human language than the word forsaken Another translation would be, why have you deserted? Why have you abandoned? Why have you rejected me? Do you know what it's like to be abandoned? Some of you would say, yes, I do. Some of you would say, I've had a husband leave me, or I've had a wife leave me, or I've had children want nothing to do with me. Others would say, I remember what it was like when my parents divorced and dad left the house and I didn't see him all my life. I know what it's like to be abandoned. I read this week of a 22-year-old father in Harlan, Kentucky. 
His name is Billy Ray Baldwin. You may have read this in the newsline. He tried to sell his one-year-old daughter for $800 to a babysitter. Now imagine what it will feel like when that little daughter grows up and will hear this story. Dad tried to dump me for 800 bucks when he needed the money. I was not worth anything to him except 800 bucks. So there are human beings who would say, I do know what it's like to be abandoned and rejected. But none of you know what it's like to be rejected by God, to be abandoned by the Father. None of you could cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Jesus did on the cross. By the way, this is the only time in Scripture ever recorded where Jesus addressed his Father as God. When he prayed, he prayed, Father. He talked to him with a a term of intimacy. Now it's this kind of cold, generic, non-intimate, my God. Not my Father, but my God. Something is happening. Some form of separation, some mystical separation as all of the wrath of God is unleashed upon his Son. For a period of time, Jesus feels the abandonment of having sin placed on him. Something Jesus has never felt before. You see, up to this point, there was always a relationship with the Father. Now, yes, in a sense, there has been a a partial separation from the Father already. Jesus coming to the earth, becoming a man in human flesh, divesting himself of his glory. Philippians says he emptied himself. So in a sense, he knew what it was like to be separated. And in a sense, he knew what it was like to be alienated. Uh, He had friends leave him. Uh, Think of the upper room. How many disciples were there around him? There were 12. Until one got up. What was his name? Judas. Judas went out to betray Jesus. So he felt the abandonment of betrayal as Judas left. Now he's got 11 left. Takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, with himself to pray with him. He comes back after a little bit of time, and what are they doing? They're sawing logs in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus needs them the most. Then after the arrest in the courtyard of Caiaphas, what is Peter doing time and time again? Denying Jesus Christ. Then finally at the cross, with the exception of John, all of the disciples had forsaken him. So Jesus knew what it was like to be abandoned by man, but never by God. In fact, Jesus himself said these words, The hour is coming when you will be scattered and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. But now, during this time on the cross, he experiences a separation And Jesus doesn't cry, My God, my God, why has Peter forsaken me? He predicted that Peter would forsake him. Or, My God, my God, why did Judas rat on me? He predicted that. That's par for the course. The anguish is there's a separation with God that I'm experiencing. And verse 1 and 2 is the cry of abandonment where there is no answer. And the rest of these verses seem to be a prayer and a looking back in verses 3 through 5 and also in verses 9 through 11. The Savior, along with the psalmist, prophetically is looking back to memories of the past, saying in effect this, Others have cried out to you. 
Others have cried out for deliverance. You've heard them. Why have you forsaken me in this time? Let's answer that question. Why was Jesus forsaken by the Father? Why did he feel this abandonment and the need to cry out on the cross these words? Because, as Isaiah the prophet put it, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The sin of all of mankind was placed upon Jesus and feeling what sin can do, he felt the alienation and separation. Paul put it this way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, there was an exchange going on, a substitution. Theologians call this the vicarious atonement. He stood in your place so that you would never have to feel this. I remember when I was um, in San Jose, California, the day I accepted Jesus Christ, prayed to receive Him as my Savior. I was thinking through this process. I had heard a Billy Graham crusade message on television, and I thought, okay, let me get this straight now, God. You, God, came to the earth in the form of Jesus to die for me. Now what you want me to do is give you my cruddy, wasted, worn-out, sinful life in exchange for your holy, righteous life. And I thought, you're getting a bad deal. I mean, it's a good deal for me. I'd be an idiot to pass it up. And yet... Why would you do that? What kind of an exchange program is that? And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to argue with it. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ because of that exchange. It was that idea. He substituted his life for me. Now, that doesn't mean when Jesus cried this out that he ceased to be God at that moment or that he ceased to be a member of the Trinity. It simply means that he ceased to have an intimacy of relationship and fellowship with his Father. The cross became the loneliest place on earth. So that the scourging, the mocking, the betrayal, all of those things that caused him suffering, nothing was like that silence from heaven, being forsaken by God. Habakkuk said, Your eyes, O God, are too pure to look upon evil. You know, I can't think of a more graphic illustration of what sin can do than this. Next time you're faced with a situation and you think, I can get away with this. What's the big deal? It'll be forgiven. Well, yes, it will. But Jesus took that which you're about to do upon himself and look what it did. Look what sin can do. When you hear that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Know this, our sins did that. And that's what sin does. It separates. It always separates, doesn't it? Whenever you allow sin in a relationship, the relationship is strained. You're separated from your spouse or your friend, your parents, your children. But you're separated from God. And that's what Jesus took here. I was reading this week about an account in 1968. Navy Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, Jr. gave a command to reduce the American casualties in Vietnam. The command was to have all of the waterways in Vietnam sprayed with the defoliant Agent Orange. You've all heard about that. The idea was to push back the jungle so that the North Vietnamese could not ambush the naval boats at point-blank range. But on one of those boats in the waterways was Lieutenant 
Elmo Zumwalt III, the son of the admiral. Now today, that lieutenant is suffering from a fatal form of lymph cancer, brought on, doctors say, by exposure to Agent Orange. Now think of the decision that that father had to make. In order to reduce casualties in the Vietnam War, I'm going to spray this stuff knowing that my son will be at risk. His son is not only facing cancer, but death. Now that's what the cross was all about. The son came abandoned by God, alienated by man, going through the suffering, all to reduce spiritual casualties so that we could know the Father. That's why this abandonment took place. And this is really where the statement becomes good news. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why? So that you wouldn't have to be forsaken. Jesus experienced darkness so that you could walk in the light. Because he has said to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. So he tasted death for us. He tasted what people who will reject Jesus Christ will experience forever. Darkness and separation, alienation and loneliness. But he took it so that we don't have to if we come to him. I draw your attention now to verses 6 through 8. It will be familiar to you if you've read the Gospels before. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. That is, they mouth off. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. Some of you may have um, memorized the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door. I bet you've not thought about this one. I am a worm and no man. That's a figure of speech. That's saying, I have become the lowest of the low. I am not treated like a human. And he wasn't in his trial and crucifixion. All of his legal rights were pushed aside. And to expedite the trial, he was taken from one place to the other, False charges were brought against him. He was beaten like an animal and then crucified. I'm a worm and no man is a cry of anguish. By the way, this will interest you. The word in Hebrew for worm is the crimson crocus worm. When these worms were crushed, they would exude a a crimson dye that they used to dye the robes of royalty, kings and queens in ancient times. Very suggestive, is it not? Jesus was crushed, and by his crimson blood, we're clothed in righteousness. That we might have the righteousness of God, it says, in him. I've discovered that a lot of people do not understand the cross. They look back on it, and they they see it as a senseless act. God sending his son to go through this, to be abandoned by man, doesn't make any sense. In fact, listen to what Jack Kevorkian, Mr. Doctor Assistant Suicide, said after one of his trials. He said, quote, Do you think it's dignified to hang from wood with nails through your hands and feet, bleeding for three or four days and slowly dying? Do you think that's dignified? Not by a long shot. Had Christ died in my van, it would be far more dignified. Jack doesn't have a clue. Not a clue, not a shred of truth as to why God sent his son to go through this. Now, we know why he did. We sing the song, do we not? What can wash away my sin? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why he came. He took suffering. He took darkness. He took pain. He took separation for us. Now, as you look down through verses 12 through 18, it speaks of something that could never apply to David, could never apply to a human up to this point. It describes an execution. Very, very graphically, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 speaks of profuse perspiration when it says, I am poured out like water. And then it says, my bones are out of joint. Historians tell us that's typical in a crucifixion. The hands, the arms, the shoulders, the pelvis to be taken out of joint during that period. The next phrase, my heart is like wax. The heart is affected during the crucifixion. Uh, Verse 15 speaks of pain and thirst. When it says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. That speaks of a crucifixion. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. All of this happened, not by coincidence, at the crucifixion. Now, what was Jesus' crucifixion like? Well, after supper, he was taken to the Garden of Gethsemane. And and you tell me if you think this fits the description we just read. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he is sweating, the scripture says, great drops of what? Now, that's a very rare condition called hematidrosis, the doctors tell us. Under extreme cases of anxiety, the tiny capillaries in the sweat glands of the forehead can burst so that blood is mingled with the sweat. It shows a heightened state of anguish. Then Jesus was arrested in the garden, taken to the house of Caiaphas without any sleep that night, on into the early hours of the morning up till the cock crowed and Peter denied Jesus Christ. So he's without strength. He's fatigued at this point, taken then to Pilate's quarters where he is standing before Pilate and Pilate orders that he is flogged, beaten with a flagellum, a Roman flagellum, which is about 18 inches, two feet long, had a wooden handle, leather strips, Embedded in the leather strips were pieces of lead, bone, glass. The idea is that when the Roman soldier would beat the back of the victim, those leather thongs with the lead and the glass would grab into the flesh. And then the Roman soldier would yank back. It wasn't just a whipping. It was a grabbing of the flesh and a lacerating of the flesh. And historians tell us that often victims died just being beaten because it tore the skin, it tore into the subcutaneous tissue, down into the deep viscera, where even some of the major organs were exposed and many of the prisoners didn't survive it. Jesus survived it. And then after all of that had to carry a cross, the upper part of the cross, the lower part was already at Golgotha, the upper part called the patibulum, a 75 to 100 pound beam to be carried through the streets of Jerusalem out to Golgotha. Then he was laid on the cross. The cross was tied together. He was stretched out. And long tapered spikes were driven not through the hands, but through the wrists, where the two main bones of the wrist, the radius and the ulna meet, forming a hook. 
And the reason that was put into the wrist is so that during the crucifixion, you needed air and you would pull up on the spikes because the intercostal muscles, the pectoral muscles of the chest would basically seize up. And so you would have to pull up on the spikes to get a breath in. You'd fight for every breath. Frederick Farrar in his book, The Life of Christ, said, quote, The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins, the crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened when a victim took several days to die. The arteries, especially the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and a raging thirst. Now, crucifixion had not even been invented when David wrote this psalm. Yet it's so detailed in the description that Matthew said it was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27. So, as you read verses 1 through 21, there's the cry of despair, and then it gets worse. The anguish grows and grows and grows until a turning point. Verses 19 through 21, notice it with me. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the oxen. You have answered me, it says. Now, you might have an NIV and it doesn't have that, but look in the margin where it says that's what it is. They have sort of ruined the Masoretic text. You reach a hinge in the psalm. It gets worse and worse and finally... You've heard me. You've answered me, is the turning point. Then listen to how the psalm picks up. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all the offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. For he who cannot keep himself, even he who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Now, verse 22 is vital in understanding that this is a messianic psalm. Because you might think, well, you're forcing the interpretation and you can certainly piece things together and make it seem like that. However... Verse 22 is very, very clear. I will declare your name to my brethren. When the writer of Hebrews writes about Jesus Christ, he quotes this verse as applying to Jesus. Listen to what he says. Hebrews 2. The one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. What's he doing? Quoting Psalm 22. And in quoting it, he says, Jesus is the speaker 
And the brethren are those for whom Christ died and rose. So he, along with Matthew, along with Jesus, would concur this is a messianic psalm spoken by Jesus Christ. But now to the accomplishments of the cross. The last half of this psalm, it takes a turn. It's better. It's filled with praise, filled with anticipation. First of all, that there would be a a growing company, congregation of people who would follow God. I want you to notice three phrases that speak of three phases of growth. Verse 22 and 23, my brethren, who are, it says after that, the descendants of Jacob, the offspring of Israel. Look with me at verses 25 through 29 and notice the next phrase, the great assembly and speaks of the ends of the world. And then look at verse 30 and 31. The next generation, a people who will be born. You see how the brethren of Christ are expanded? He begins with Israel, then he goes out to the nations of the world and the great assembly. And then finally, there's people who haven't even been born yet. That's the next generation who will hear. Jesus on the cross is assured by the Father that his atoning work will save many people throughout history beginning with the Jews, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and even includes you, you and I. Here's my point. God never intended Christianity, the gospel, to remain a localized Middle Eastern Jerusalem Jewish sect. He wanted it to spread over all the earth. It wasn't just for the disciples, or just for the Jerusalemites, or just for the people living 2,000 years ago, but for a future generation. I heard a great story about a soldier who died in a war. His two buddies wanted to bury him. In the distance, they see a churchyard. They take the body over to the churchyard. The only problem is it's a Catholic churchyard, and he's a Protestant. But they go to the priest. They said, "Our, our friend was valiant. He died in battle. We'd like to bury him, give him a decent Christian burial. The priest said, is he Catholic? He said, no. He said, well, those are the rules. He can't be buried within the cemetery because he's not Roman Catholic. Noticing the disappointment on the faces of these young soldiers, the priest said, but wait a minute. Bury him on the outside of the fence, just outside the cemetery. It's, it's close enough, but it's not inside. So they did. They buried him, walked away, came back the next day, deciding to just visit the grave, have a prayer before going back to battle. But they couldn't find the grave. They looked and they looked and it wasn't there. We, we buried him here yesterday, just on this side of the fence, the other side. But it's not here. So they went to the priest. They said, remember, we buried our friend yesterday. We can't find his grave. He said, well, I know. That's because I was so bothered by our conversation yesterday. I couldn't sleep all night. So I got up and I moved the fence to include your friend. So that's what God does. Begins with Gentiles in Jerusalem. He moves out to Judea, Samaria, the Roman Empire, Cappadocia, Greece. Takes it to the next generation and the next generation so that you and I can have a chance to be saved. Now, God knows that some of you are going to come to Christ. You haven't yet, but it's an anticipation that Christ has. Let me say that this has to be the joy that Hebrews talks about of Jesus on the cross. Listen to this statement. The book of Hebrews tells us this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
Now I ask you, what joy possibly did Jesus have that helped him endure the cross? It was the joy that you and I could be saved. It was seeing you sitting here with a Bible praising God because five months ago, four years ago, you received Christ. The thing that brings joy to the heart of Jesus is seeing that you got saved through this act on the cross. That was the joy that was set before him. Oh, Lord, look what you did to Sally and Frank and George. You brought them to yourself through this act. It was worth it. And so you say, well, I'm not yet a Christian, but you might be. Today, you might receive Jesus Christ after this message. It could be your turning point. And let me also say, as we kind of narrow this focus down to a close, if you're a Christian today, this shows us the great privilege we have of adding to the joy of Jesus Christ by telling others about him. I call it trickle-down evangelism. Beginning in Jerusalem, that's where the gospel started, it passed from Peter and James and John and Paul the Apostle to the Roman Empire, and eventually, 2,000 years later, here you have it. What are you going to do with it? This ought to be the legacy that Christians leave, don't you think? I think of all the things Christians can get involved in, this has got to be the highest And I know that you can write checks to uh, good causes and great organizations and be involved in feeding the poor and helping the sick and political campaigns. But if you don't preach the gospel, you failed. This is what God wants you to pass on, the gospel, the truth. Somebody once said, give a man a dollar and you'll cheer his heart. Give a man a dream, you'll challenge his heart. Give him Christ and you'll change his heart. And that was the joy of the Savior on the cross that Millions could be saved because of his work. Now I draw your attention to the very last verse and we'll close with this. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. Notice that last line. That he has done this. Did you know that in Hebrew, that last phrase is just one word? that he has done this. It's the Hebrew word asa'ah. A better translation would be done or completed or it is finished. Isn't that interesting? The psalm begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It closes with, It is finished. One word. I say that's important because on the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. And in Greek, it was one word, tetelestai. Here it's asa'ah, then it was tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. He begins with saying, you've forsaken me. Now here's the accomplishment of it all. It's done. It's finished. Now what's finished? When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, what did he mean? Number one, the law is finished. The law that said, do this, don't do that. That's over. When you read the Old Testament law, all it tells you is that you're a failure. You haven't kept it. You look at it and go, oops, ooh, you read on, oof, ouch, that hurts, I've done all that. The law indicts you. It's a mirror, it shows that you have sinned. And so the old covenant is taken away. In fact, every time, if you lived then and you brought a lamb to be sacrificed, you're looking at what sin does. You're going, look at that blood draining from that lamb. I did that. I caused this innocent victim to suffer so that my sins could be washed away. But now we have the perfect Lamb of God who once for all has done away with all that. So the law is finished. Secondly, not only is the law finished, but your redemption is finished. 
What I mean is this. You can't add to what Jesus did on the cross. The moment you try to add to it, that's legalism. And that's an insult to God. For you to say, well, I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ plus my church membership. Or I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ plus baptism. Or I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ plus whatever you add to it. That's an insult to God. That's like looking at the cross and saying, wasn't good enough. Almost. But I've got to do a little bit here too. No, you don't. You have to receive what he's done, period. He's saying, well, it sounds like you're talking about cheap grace. It's not cheap. It cost him everything. And if you meet the Savior, you will change. I know people are afraid of hearing that kind of preaching on grace. They think you're making it too easy. Listen, if you come to Jesus Christ and you know what it's like to repent of sin and turn to Him, your life will be different. God will change you. God will take you as you are. And He'll utterly change you. You know what I heard? And I can't confirm it. I read it in a a couple of different accounts. Remember when Jesus died, what happened in the temple? What got ripped? A veil, a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where only the priest could go, the high priest, once a year. That veil was fairly thick. It was a separation. It said when Jesus died, the veil was ripped from top to bottom. That that ought to have been a clue. God ripped it. It wasn't ripped from bottom to top. It was ripped from top, 20, 30, 40 feet tall, down to the bottom. What God was saying is that I'm opening up access. You don't need priests and rituals and rites and all sorts of rigmarole to come to me. Just come because of what my son did. But you know what I heard also? I read that the priests in the temple sewed it back up. Isn't that just like man? God opens the way and makes it easy. No, no, no. We need our religious complications. We feel safe in them. And God wants to open the way. He said, it's finished. It's over. You can't add to it. Don't try. There was a little boy who said, Mom, I'm going to help you wash windows today. You think, I like the kid's number. Get him over to my house, maybe. And so she said, son, great. Begin with the dirtiest window of all, the kitchen window. So he goes outside, gets his bucket and sponge, and he's wiping this thing, putting all the elbow grease he can into it, but it's just not coming clean. It's smudgier than ever. Keeps trying, gets tired, finally says, Mom, I'm trying to clean this window, but it won't come clean. She said, Why have you been spending all of your time washing the glass on the outside, the dirt's on the inside? You know, I see people doing that all the time. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to start going to church. After all, my kids are at that age. I'm going to buy me a Bible. I'm going to get me to a church. I'm going to sort of do some right things. You've got to clean up the inside. And only the blood of Jesus Christ shed for your sins could ever do that. That's his business. That's why he came and died. That's the reason for the cross. It's an inside job. And you better let the expert do it. You try to do it, you'll fail. And so we come in repentance and we turn to him and we ask for forgiveness. Let's do that. Father, we have seen the anguish and the accomplishments of the cross. We have seen the agony of a Savior crying out, feeling what it's like to have sin placed on Him and the Father turn away for a moment. 
We have read of the hostility of men toward the Son of God. And yet we have seen the accomplishment of it all, just like a crushed worm that gives crimson and clothes royalty. You have clothed us with righteousness by the blood of your Son. Lord, you've made us ambassadors to pass the baton of evangelism down to other generations. Lord, I pray that you would prevent anyone from trying to clean up their own act. Because no matter what we do, we can't be good enough. There's nothing we could ever do or be that would satisfy the demands of a holy God except the death of an innocent victim, a substitutionary death of a perfect man, the God-man. And Father, we receive that today. We have a new appreciation for your work. And we pray for those who yet don't know you, that today would be a day of decision where they would make a choice to follow Jesus Christ. Perhaps as you're sitting here this morning and you would say, well, I've been religious and I've sort of believed in God tentatively, tacitly, but I really haven't made an overt commitment to him. Maybe you're ready to do that today. Maybe you'd like to know that if you left here, your sins are forgiven, cleansed, washed. You have a new life, a new start. Wouldn't you like to know that if you died, your name is written in heaven and you'd instantly be there? You can know that. But you have to come by the way of the cross. There is no other way. If you would like to do that and ask God to forgive your sins, I'd like you just to raise your hand. Say, Skip, pray for me. I'm going to give my life to Jesus now. Jesus now. Jesus now. Jesus now.